Luckily for you, the answer to the great question of life, the universe and everything is to be found in this podcast, a worker's guide to everything. Sometimes cans, often bad language, always solid politics. This is the Trademark Belfast podcast. Listen now for Trademark regulars and very special comrade guests and fellow travellers talking all things lefty, Ireland and the world. We remain, as always, anti-sectarian, anti-racist and anti-fascist. Enjoy. Buenas and welcome once again to another Trademark podcast, number 76 in the series. I'm joined once again by Stuart McGill, long-term contributor to our podcast, and Durawan Fertil, who's done a few podcasts with us. I'm Stefan Anulain, um, you're all very welcome. So much to talk about, of course, so little time. We've had quite a positive response from the pod from a couple of weeks ago, but then again, it's not hard to sound sane in the midst of everyone losing their shit, with so many falling in obediently behind the propaganda of war, particularly in the West. Forgive some, of course, for getting lost in the fog of war, because it is a difficult thing to follow. There's an awful lot of information out there, sometimes too much, and it's hard to understand and get your head around what's really going on. We know there's three million refugees and counting, thousands of dead civilians and indeed soldiers. And we're not experts on this stuff either, or certainly I'm not, and I'm not a big fan either of people who seem to have a fetish for pictures of fucking tanks and bodies strewn about and videos of drone strikes. But there is interest, nonetheless, in the kind of military conduct of the war. We touched on it really briefly last time, because it has been strange, to say the least, I think we'll agree. And in terms of Russia's tactics, in terms of the kind of levels of Ukrainian resistance, there's very little information coming out of the Donbass region, where, of course, as we know, 14,000 people have been killed in the last eight years. So, lads, I'll get you first. Any thoughts on the military conduct of the war? Anything that struck you as interesting for our, our listeners? Yeah, the first thing that strikes me is this war is not going well for anyone. It's not going well for the Ukrainian people, obviously, who are the victims of aggression and bombing and, and their lives being turned upside down. But it's not going well for, for Putin and for Russia either. By all indications, they're pretty bogged down and have you know, the initial plans to roll into Kiev, to roll into other major cities and parts of Ukraine just haven't taken place. There's the big sort of headlines of a or was it a 50-mile-long line of tanks rolling into Kyiv? They just got stuck there for a few days because of a bridge. And I think what's notable in all of this is probably the Ukrainian military, which was a bit of a mess eight years ago, has been rather significantly refurbished, both with internal weapons but also training from US and NATO and others, and is fighting a very light, maneuverable fight here. So the weapons they're using are targeting tanks and, and similar vehicles. And there's and the different battalions and units are sort of being around, whereas the Russians are coming in with heavy artillery and, and trying to take territory. But there is no front line. Ukraine is the front line. So wherever the Ukrainian forces move to, that's and the Russians move to, that's where the fight is. And they're focusing on military capacity instead of territorial control, which I think is not what the Russians were preparing for. And whether or not they had actually properly even prepared their troops for the invasion is a separate question. Yeah, that's another one what we might get into another time in terms of the conscript nature of the Russian military and stuff. Stuart, anything to add there in terms of the early conduct of this conflict and what it's taught you or shown you? I think it's interesting in that if you look at war as a continual conflict between the development of the weapons of defence and attack, the Ukrainians seem to have done very well because they got a lot of compact equipment which can take out the Russian artillery quite quickly. But there was the javelin, the shoulder propelled javelins. You wonder how the war in the north of Ireland would have gone had the IRA got hold of that equipment, but that's another story. And they seem able to go ahead and take out the Russians relatively easily, cause them a huge amount of problem. Uh, and also they've they bombed bridges. The Ukrainians seem to be a whole lot better prepared than the Russians. You get the impression from reading about this, and I did read quite a bit about this today, that Putin planned this insofar as they planned it at all, with a relatively small number of advisors. So I don't think that he shared it with too many people. The Air Force and the ground forces do not seem to have any integration, which is why the Air Force performance has been described as very bad by so many people. And they've had issues with getting food to the troops, and they've had some issues with the tyres and so on. Now, there's an awful lot of bullshit comes out during any confrontation. So in a few years' time, if we get that far we might be able to read quite a different history. Yes, I'm always here to cheer you up, Stefan. I think that yeah, there is no doubt that this is not a particularly great performance by the Russian military or by the Russian Air Force. But in a couple of years' time, we might have a different view because the fog of war is deep. 
Yeah, thanks for that, lads. Thanks for those thoughts. We should also mention, of course, because it's been reported just this afternoon in the FT, I think it was, Stuart, wasn't it, that Ukraine and Russia have made some sort of progress on a tentative 15-point peace plan, which this has been mooted tonight. And I know it's been suggested over the last few days that it will include a ceasefire, obviously some sort of Russian withdrawal from some of the areas if Kiev or the Ukrainian government, I should say, declares some sort of neutrality and accepts limits to the size of its armed forces. Is this the off-ramp, Durawan? Is this Are we less afraid than we were two weeks ago, and do we see more of a chance of, of some sort of end to this? I think we're a little less afraid, but more due to the fact that NATO has quite clearly ruled out any kind of intervention. And on this, I find the repeated calls from Ukrainian President Zelensky for a no-fly zone to be incredibly reckless. A no-fly zone isn't what it sounds like. It's an aerial combat zone. It's not a you know, like everyone agrees not to fly. It's you're shooting down planes if they're if you come across them from the other side. It means confrontation and escalation. And he knows that this would mean a broadening of the conflict into Europe and with the US as well. So a peace deal, 15 point. I haven't seen the detail of it. It could be an off-ramp. The problem is that, and we don't know what's in it and what is people are willing to give up. I mean, Zelensky has said that he's willing to, and Ukraine is willing not to try to join NATO, which is one of the red lines for Russia. And that would go a considerable way, I think, towards bringing Russia to the table. But what else is in that? I don't know. And at the moment, the logic of the conflict suits both sides continuing to be at war. There's a, the logic of the Russians slowly, gradually, inexorably trying to get in, and of the Ukrainians being the good fight until someone comes to the rescue. So unless there's something substantial in these 15 points that both sides feel like they're getting something, I'm not sure yet, but I'm hoping I just cannot say without more detail. This is all again in the fog of war. There was only literally an hour ago that I saw it come out. So Stuart, any thoughts on that potential for... They do, they've been talking weirdly since like day two or three of this in Belarus or on the border and other places. I mean, they've been talking from the start of the conflict which is a kind of a strange idea, I suppose, but it's one that holds within it some hope for the de-escalation of the conflict. Let's hope so, but I think we've got to consider what is Russia's war aim here? What are, what are their war aims? Do I want to make sure I've completely destroyed them as a potential attacking force? Do I have a Ukraine which no longer has revanchist ideas regarding Donbass or the Crimea? Because again, people forget a couple of years ago, they fixed up this Crimea platform initiative in Ukraine that an awful lot of Western countries attended when they had the first meeting. And he declared the intention of taking back Ukraine, as Zelensky declared the intention of taking back Ukraine. Now, realistically, how is that going to happen? Because most people in Crimea don't want that. Most people in Donbass certainly do not want to go back to Ukraine if they've been bombing the shit out of them for the last seven or eight years. If I'm Putin, I'm thinking, can I get a peace which will guarantee that these people do not come to be even more powerful in Ukraine than they are now? Because some of these groups have said that they would like to go ahead and take over Kiev themselves. They want to run Ukraine rather than the kind of rather half-assed democracy they have now. So I think there's a possibility, but I think we have to think hard about what Putin's ultimate war aims are. And there's been limited discussion of that so far. He's just been characterized as some kind of evil nutter. And last thing, people are talking, including Zelensky, about Putin is going to go ahead and invade you next. He invoked 9-11 today. I really see very limited evidence of that. Russia's economic constraints so the, on its ability to fight war have become quite apparent over the last couple of weeks. The fact he's asked the Chinese for aid already shows that they are having some serious issues. Yeah, I think any peace deal that emerges is going to have not just Ukrainian neutrality, but it's absolutely going to include a deal on the Donbass and Crimea. What fills me with less hope on this point is that, to one degree or another, the Minsk Accords also had agreements on the Donbass, yeah, including a process for, for a referendum, for you know, election and representation at the in Kyiv. And this wasn't completed. And both sides blamed the other in some respects. It was a question of process, of which direction, which things first. But unless there's something that can break through that particular Democlean problem, then I don't know that that will get fixed. We've been here before for you know, several years where there's been a, we'll have a vote and let the people of Donbass decide, but that's just not happened. The point about ceasefires, we know very well from Ireland, the point about ceasefires is one thing and peace processes, but they can go on for some time without proper resolution and they can go on for decades without resolution. Moving on as to the subject I wanted to talk about as well, which is the economic impact of some of this stuff as well, because it's it's central to understanding how this thing's going to play out. And I know we've seen a slow, kind of brutal, possibly mismanaged assault by Russia on Ukraine, but it's still an expression really, isn't it, of massive military power 
and are still grinding its way forward, even however slowly, even if it lacks the kind of shock and awe of US and NATO's previous assaults on other countries. And in comparison, whilst the debate over no-fly zones, as you highlighted, Duran goes on and military assistance, the US, Europe and their partners have shown a fairly impressive coordinated assault on the Russian economy. On that, they've been fairly good, particularly targeting its most important financial institution, its central bank. And if people are wondering what is meant by the extension of imperialist power beyond the military, it will look no further than how the West has responded to Russia, accompanied, of course, by, I don't know, about 300 companies have pulled out of the Russia, including, of course, McDonald's, or I hear Burger King staying. It's a franchise, but it's not closing stores. And Marks and Spencer's, by the way, which is owned by a Turkish company. But that targeting of the Russia financial system is intended to inflict economic pain inside the country, I'm assuming, and to weaken Putin. We know that Russia's close to, I think they were paying some of their interest on their debt this week. And I know that we know that Western governments have blocked Russia from raising new money on capital markets in London and New York. But when you look internally into Russia, the country's corporate sector doesn't really borrow internationally. Most of its loans come from state-owned banks, not foreign ones. So has Russian isolation, this is the question, got around to it eventually, has Russian isolation since 2014 helped it? And are these sanctions going to have the impact that the West hopes for on weaken Putin or will they weather them okay? One thing before I kick off on this about the Minsk agreement. Sorry to go back to this, but it's an important point. I fucking warned you two about saying I'm going to go back to the previous fucking points. I'll let you off this one. You can do this one. But after that, no more. I'm just going to go back. All right, sure. That's your, your first well, and last one and carry on. What are you going to do? Fucking sanction me? Right then. So as I was trying to say... Do you remember that thing that came out a couple of weeks ago? I think I may have sent it to you, Stefan. It's whenever Zelensky was talking to the guys in Donbass, the Azov Battalion, and some other bunch of Nazis. And he's saying, you really should leave here and stop bombing these people. And he says, I'm 41 years old. I'm not a loser. Don't be so horrible to me. And they told him to fuck off. Right. These people enjoy an awful lot of power in Ukraine beyond what their electoral performance indicates. So you can see why Putin is concerned about that without justifying the totality of his actions. Russia is about to default, I would think. Uh, it hasn't come through yet, but it'd be very unlikely if Russia doesn't have some default within hours on some of its foreign debt. Since 2014, both the West and Russia are better placed to go ahead and handle that. But we don't know. All right, because this could become a little bit like Lehman Brothers back in 2008. People thought, let Lehman go to hell. It'll be an example, make an example to everybody else without calculating fully the integration and the interdependence of the financial sector. And this can also be exacerbated by the fact that with the price of commodities going to, uh, to hell just now. And an example here, I think it's Xinjiang Holding in China. It's the world's biggest producer of nickel and stainless steel. The guy took a big punt on nickel going down and it went up. He lost fucking millions. I think the LME only resumed, sorry, London Metal Exchange only resumed trading nickel today, and they had to cancel it after about four or five hours because everybody was trying to come out of nickel. Now, this guy is a big player in the industry, and there's an awful lot of banks that are into him. If the sanctions and the default kicks off financial problems, and while it's a very heavily interdependent financial sector, things could go tits up quite quickly. So at the moment, we simply don't know. It's a long way of saying I don't know, Okay, but these are the issues we need to face. Yeah, it's really, obviously it's really hard to predict the outcome of any of these kind of sanctions and the, the economic instability that's, that will result because the world's been economically unstable since 2008 and before. So this is like just a further level of instability being added. Duruan, what about that? Is, are these sanctions going to make, I know it's hard to say, but your opinion, are they going to make, are they big enough and strong enough to weaken Putin's power in Russia? Maybe that's a geopolitical question rather than an economic one. I think the it's a big question because it's hard to know how, that, how these sanctions and the impact of them are affecting people's willingness to risk the steps necessary to remove Putin, whether it's popular movements or people within the, uh, the circles of power who have had enough. Certainly, it seems that Russia's had a number of years to prepare itself and is in a better and stronger position now than it was. But it, as, as Stuart said and others have said, like the Russian economy is not a very strong one. It's approximately the size of, of Spain or, or smaller, and it's vulnerable. It has some strength, but it's very dependent upon China. It's very dependent upon the oil and gas exports sending to Europe, which constitute a large part of Europe's fossil fuel. I don't know that the sanctions right now are affecting the people that they're meant to be affecting. I've got friends and their families who are actually living in Russia right now. They're struggling as a result and are fleeing because they simply can't. They can't actually 
handle the economic situation, let alone the political one. And they're leaving with very little money because there are strong, there are very strict limits on the amount of cash that they can take out of the banks. There's no doubt that the sanctions have, a, as you said, a long-term impact if they continue, that, that it's hard to read. What's perhaps easier to read is that it, there is going to be a shift in the global balances of power. And you can see already, and people are suggesting already, that Russia's going to have to move closer to the, the BRIC countries and certainly to China in terms of say, selling its resources, particularly its oil and gas. And most punters are unaware, of course, that the world's largest reserve currency is the dollar. About 60%, 70% of all deals globally are in dollars. And what that means is the primary benefit, Stuart's pointed us out before on a previous podcast, is that Yanks can buy most of its foreign imports very cheaply because it buys them in dollars. And if you're in Britain or in Iran and you want to buy oil from Russia, you can't just pay for your oil in sterling or euro. You've got to go and buy dollars and then use them dollars to buy the commodities. And that's partly why petrol in Ireland and Britain is more expensive than it is in the States. Partly part of the reason. But the fact that the world's largest reserve currency is in dollars gives enormous economic and indeed imperial power to the US. So the related question might be, might sanctions and this global shift reinforce the relative decline of the importance of the dollar in a new emerging global financial system? Because we know that the euro is, is being used as a reserve currency, a lot smaller than the dollar, of course. But also China has their renminbi, which it wants to bring in. It, it accounts for about 2% of world trade at the moment. And all of those regional kind of currency blocks will jostle for power, won't they, in a fairly crowded world? So will that lead to more conflict? And will it lead, Stuart, to a more of a bipolar world, you reckon, and threaten, and indeed threaten US imperialism? Since I was a teenager in the 70s and started reading economics, because I've always been all about the fun, people have been talking about the decline of the dollar. In all honesty, I think it's largely bollocks. When you look at the fact that the dollar is such a... It's such a huge currency because it's freely tradable. The Chinese will have to make the renminbi as easily tradable as the dollar if they want to become anything like a potential reserve currency. And frankly, at the moment, they're not going to go ahead and do that. And if I may, just something again on the sanctions. Russia will not suffer anywhere near so much as people think from these sanctions. About 40% of its oil exports go to the Chinese. That will continue. Other people will continue buying oil from Russia. They will find some way of going through some other agents. When you look at the wheat and the corn exports, these are really important, man. Right? People are going to carry on buying them. So countries like Egypt, Turkey, they will need to carry on buying Russian wheat and the price will go up. So Russia isn't going to stop selling and countries aren't going to go ahead and start buying all this sort of stuff. Will the world settle into a place where there's two major forces? I think we are looking at that developing at the moment, but a lot depends on how deep and how long you think the Russian and Chinese friendship will be. I think a large part of what we're talking about now is because Putin was angry at the humiliation of Russia at the collapse of the Cold War and the continual humiliations inflicted upon them. I don't think you're going to particularly like to be bossed around and told what to do by the Chinese, and there are some serious conflicts on the way there. Duran, what about yourself in terms of that bi bipolar world emerging? Are we reading too much into it, and is it too early to tell yet? I mean, it depends who the third or fourth would be, because at the moment, certainly US and China would be the bipolar, and then in tacking Russia next to China, I don't think is really a fair comparison or a fair, fair team-up. The Chinese strategy for dominance and for growth is a gradual one. It's a very, it's one based upon stability, one based upon using soft and, when necessary, a bit of strong power, but within what rules exist and then softly around them. Russia isn't anywhere near as strong as it sounds, as, and certainly not and as strong as the Soviet Union, Soviet Union used to be. Its economy is, quite frankly, quite weak. Its military is showing itself to be quite weak, actually. If it can't deal with the Ukraine, this talk of tanks rolling into Berlin is nonsense, let alone even the Baltic states, I think, at this point. China hasn't a lot of respect for Russia's economy, but I think it's useful. But what it does have some respect for is not so much that it's militarily successful, but that Putin's strategy of effectively sowing chaos at his boundaries has, from time to time, a strategic use. And that's something which they're both wary of because they border onto Russia and also can see a big use for. The problem is that they also have economic interests in Ukraine and this process could potentially endanger them. Cutting it short, I don't think any bipolar world that's emerging includes Russia as a major player. And what we're seeing now is, in some ways, that not happening. And so some of the work through of that process and resistance against that as Russia tries to maintain relevance. Well, you mentioned there before about Russia's sale of oil and gas and the fact that it's got willing buyers around the rest of the parts of the world. And I think India 
was in the newspaper today in the Financial Times talking about buying loads more Russian oil and gas as well. And we know that there's a cost of living crisis in Ireland and in Britain as well, where most of the people listen to this pod. And we know that oil and gas are going up in price. People and indeed industries are struggling to pay those bills. The question of why it's happened is really important because Brexit was the cause and then COVID was the cause. And now you, the war in Ukraine is the cause. Maybe, Stuart, the cause is just price gouging and profiteering by those energy companies. I mean, no one actually thinks this stuff is going to cost more to produce. Is it just profiteering on a grand scale? Profiteering is a massive part of it. When you look at American, forget the whole war issue, American corporate margins have never been so high since 1950. And you look at the main gas suppliers in the UK, 82% of profits over the last five years they've taken as dividends. These are people I can afford to go ahead and take a hit. They're not going to. And a huge number of companies are going to make an awful lot of money. We'll talk about the American military industrial complex later. So, yeah, profiteering is an important part of it, as is speculation. It depends on the time. It depends on the circumstance. But a few years ago, a couple of sites looked at what percentage of the oil price was driven by speculation. And at certain points, it can be as high as 60%. It's probably about that. Now, our friends, the commodity traders, will be buying up oil usually. India and Bangladesh as well will carry on buying Russian oil because that's they have an influence there. And remember, for a long time, the Soviet Union was a good friend of developing India in the 50s and 60s when it was a quasi-socialist country itself. And regarding the commodities and the whole pricing issue here, very complicated situation to rise. Like corn, apparently Ukrainian corn and sunflower oil is a huge part of the West purchases for animal feedstuffs. So if the price of corn goes up a hell of a lot more, farmers are going to go ahead and have to go ahead and drop it. And they'll probably move into wheat, which will put the pressure on the price of wheat. And that will, of course, filter through the entire system. I want to come on to that one later because there's an important question, isn't there, about food security coming out of the company as well. But to stick to the oil and gas thing, one of the things that I noticed just actually yesterday was that uh, very quickly, as soon as the war started, the environmental lobby and fair play to them for saying it, but we're quick to move in and point about we need to move away from the dependency on fossil fuels because you know, we're buying Rus- Russian oil and gas and this is a perfect opportunity to move to renewables. But then the right have also moved into that space and they're now saying national security means we need to open up coal fields again and we need to open up oil fields again and we need to get back to fracking again. So you have these two opposite discourses emerging from this conflict. Which one do you think is going to win out? Either the renewables win or we're all dead in the long run. But in the short run, things are a little more complex. It's just off on the way. The main beneficiaries of this entire fandangle with the suspension of Nord Stream 2, the gas pipeline from Russia through the Baltic, which in many ways is designed to also circumnavigate around Ukraine. But then also, the since then, pressure from the US on Europe to effectively cancel other oil and gas purchases from Russia. The main beneficiary of this, in many ways, the one key beneficiary is actually the US, which has been putting a lot of time and money and legislative effort into enabling and suppression of democracy, into enabling fracked gas and producing large enough amounts of it for export. And that one of their aims is to then replace the Russian gas, which is being sent to Europe with their own gas, and get the American economic foot back into Europe where it's been slipping a little of late. On the EU side, the language and the rhetoric coming out of Brussels, you saw it in the immediate aftermath, but then in in the debate around this vote, the motion that was voted in the European Parliament recently, Ursula von der Leyen, the president of the European Commission, and heads of numerous governments have made it clear we're going to rearm, but also we're going to do it clean and green. We're going to get rid of Russian gas and focus on renewables. But if you look at what they're actually doing, they're busy making oil and gas and everything else, putting a green label on it and and reshaping it. So there's been no genuine systemic steps towards changing the energy makeup across the EU. And so they will, over time, they can invest and they should invest in renewables. But I think for now, there's a dependence on fossil fuels, which has to be replaced. The Russian has to be replaced with something, and the Americans are there to, to offer what they have. Or the, the Danes and the Norwegians and others have the North, North Sea gas and oil, which they can throw into the mix. fear is you're going to see that 2050 target just disappear, aren't you? That's yeah. the fear. It'll be 2055 and 2060. And as you said, then we are really fucked. But the, there are other financial and economic consequences, Stuart, that stretch beyond the petrol pump, of course. So you mentioned earlier, and I didn't want to interrupt you, but I wanted to go into it now, that the spiraling cost of wheat and grain, and you mentioned nickel, and a host of other commodities is threatening the affordability of so many things in the supply chain. And we can, we know we can have this 
international coordinated economic sanctions on a massive scale. But of course, we can't have any internationally coordinated measures to stabilize global food supplies or energy and commodity prices, because then you'd have to interfere with the markets. You have to leave the markets alone. And food is a problem, isn't it, Stu? And as you mentioned, what's happening in Ukraine is likely, unless we see peace literally in the next fortnight, it's likely to have an impact on global food prices. And that will impact on some parts of the world a lot worse than other parts of the world. Exactly. It's going to affect basically the Middle East and North Africa much worse than it will affect us. It will affect us indirectly, but given the destination of Russian and Ukrainian wheat exports. Remember, too, that it's about time these guys should be planting some stuff. And now that is affected, things will get much worse than they are now. And it almost certainly will be affected unless some peace is reached relatively shortly, which is why these talks are so important. But, but the whole Arab Spring kicked off because of food riots in Tunisia and across the Arab world. So you talk about food security. The security of the whole planet is affected by this directly and indirectly and not just because of the possibility of nuclear war. So we do have some very difficult and very trying times come up. Can I just talk to you about the military aspect for a while? It's interesting that the European Union has always been a very strong economic power, but a very weak military power. That would appear to be changing now quite severely, and they're looking to get more military power going, whereas Russia has always been a weak economic power and a strong military. So it will be interesting to see if the European Union does, and also the European Union too, is a major market for wheat exports. So they will probably have something to say about this. So there is a connection that wasn't just going off on a bit of a tangent. No, I mean, Duro, and you spoke about that last time, about the decision in the European Parliament there to increase military spending in Germany's, they doubled their military spending or something to 100 billion. So, it, it, I mean, how far, because Stuart has mentioned it, we'll just quickly segue into that. How far away is an EU army? And what? And that will also then provide some sort of, will it balance or challenge or tension with NATO? Or maybe NATO will just fucking disappear as a defensive alliance and the EU army will become it. I don't think it's as near as people fear, but it's closer than <clears throat> I feel comfortable with. Where I'm sitting here in, in Copenhagen at the moment, I just about a week ago, the government's announced the referendum for June 1 to remove one of four exceptions that Denmark has to the EU treaties, um, which is on the military cooperation. So we'll bring Denmark into the Common Security and Defence Programme with you know, the rest of the EU, which is a step towards the an EU army. I don't think it's anywhere near as close as the powers that be would like. I think the current crisis is certainly giving it more legs than it deserves. But there's a lot of reticence and a lot of suspicion around this as well. And while I'm being half German, looking at Germany's rearmament, and I'm feeling pretty disgusted, actually, and not a little uncomfortable, there are others in Europe who feel even more uncomfortable with a militarised Germany. And a militarised Germany and an EU army is maybe a little bit too much for a lot of them to, to swallow. It's interesting, of course, that this has happened under a French presidency of the, of the EU Council, because the French, one of the big pushes for an EU army, because they also see themselves as a military power historically, and they want to continue that. And their historical military role will give them greater weight in any kind of EU army and counteract Germany's economic influence within the EU. So there's sort of this elbow room business going on within the bloc. And I think that's actually where a lot of this will end up to. It remains stuck in the politics. The, an actual army is a long way off, but there are military cooperations between these the various countries in the EU. And at some point, it's going to become more formalised, but it'll be like the frog in the pot. Most things in the European Union, you don't know it's happening until it's already passed. That's what this, those successive treaties have done, of course, in constitutionalising capitalism in the heart of the European Union. It happens by stealth almost, by treaty by treaty. So one PESCO leads to something else and leads to something else. Next thing is a fully-fledged army invading North Africa. But And of course, Irish neutrality, such as it is, is under serious threat as well. There have been dozens of articles in the last two weeks about how we need to be grown up and how we need to go up to the adults' table and how we need to get rid of our pointless neutrality and join in with these imperialist adventures wherever they may take us. That all points, of course, all this increase in military spending and militarism to one industry that appears, well, will come out and is coming out of this crisis in a very healthy position. And that's, of course, the arms industry. And there's a, currently about half a trillion dollar defence industry supplying weapons actually to both sides at the moment. The EU announced, as we said, like last week, they're going to deliver half a billion euros worth of arms to Ukraine. The US has pledged 350 million euros on top of 650 million it gave last year. Lockheed is up by 16%. BAE Systems is up by 26% in the stock markets. And we've got a great quote here from Gregory Hayes, Chief Executive of Raytheon, 
He was briefing investors just there two, three weeks ago, end of January. He said, we just have to look at last week where we saw the drone attack in the UAE. And of course, the tensions in Eastern Europe, the tensions in the South China Sea, all of these things are putting pressure on defense spending. So I fully expect we're going to see some benefit from it. That's the beautiful cynicism of the arms industry. War is good for businesses. So it's a fact. The biggest risk to investors explained Richard Abolafia, who's a managing director of a US defense consultancy, aerodynamic advisory, another great quote. The whole thing is revealed to be a Russian house of cards and the threat dissipates, he says, will make no money. Luckily for him and his investor, the house of cards invaded Ukraine. So these people are doing really well out of it, Stuart. The military industrial complex is a real thing, isn't it? It was first mentioned by Eisenhower in the late 1950s. Interesting, Eisenhower, who was a Republican, would probably be seriously on the far left of American politics these days. I think people have to remember that since 1945, and certainly when you look at the golden years of capitalism, say 45 to 80, so-called, a large part of that was fueled by American pre-industrial expenditure. When you look also at the fossil fuels industry, they've been the big beneficiaries of this. We talked earlier on about, will we go into renewables? Will we? Bollocks. It's all about power relations. You've got the financial sector, who backs the military industrial complex and the fossil fuels industry. You have the LNG industry, with which, sorry, liquefied natural, natural gas, with which Biden has been associated with for some time. The Germans and the Dutch are now building two big new ports to enable the import of LNG from the States. America all already sells more LNG to Europe than Russia does. A lot better than more gas to Europe than Russia does. That will increase now because the Germans have been convinced to go ahead and turn off Nord Stream. That is why some people believe that America is the ag- aggressor here and America has forced the situation with supporting Ukraine because Russia has been forced into this action. Now, I'm not saying I agree with this, but when you look at the beneficiaries so far, military industrial complex, American banking sector, Probably the American wheat industry too, because they'll be selling an awful lot more to countries that don't, that can't buy stuff from Russia or Ukraine so easily. And of course, the France and Germany are now moved away from any sort of rapprochement with Russia, and are now very much part of the American camp. When you look at the original intention behind the founding of the European Union, it was partly to be a nice, sensible bit in the middle between the crazy Americans on the West and the crazy Soviet Union in the East. All right, but now it's come to a serious conflict or a potential serious conflict. The European Union has fallen very much in the American camp. Is that part of the picture here that the where we start talking about the military and industrial complex here and the benefit to the arms industry of conflict? And we know that, but what does it mean for Europe and what does it mean for its relationship to the United States? From the US in particular, aimed at Europe was so many countries failing to meet their NATO expense targets. It's a an imperial aggressive alliance, and it's been busy off attacking and bombing people as it pleases. But its relevance has been on the wane, and with it, the military expenses in a lot of countries, because they had to focus on different things. We've had economic crises, we've had social changes. But this crisis has given a real shot in the arm to the arms industry and to NATO both at the same time. So they sort of go hand in, in mailed fist, mailed glove in this respect. And I don't think it's a coincidence. The carry on around NATO's failed or failing funding and the need to boost that, the constant trumpeting of Russia as a threat. I don't think that the US is the aggressor here. I think there are multiple aggressors here. There's a whole series of imperial powers and they're all trying to make the best of the situation and the best profits from that situation. And yeah, Putin's one of them. The US is another. And the European, especially the larger powers in Europe, are certainly part of that as well. There's an opportunity here which they've helped to create through applying pressure, knowing that Russia is going to respond in one way or another. They've been pushing for a number of years. Russia has done something which is unconscionable, and they're using that to rearm Europe, to rearm, to profiteer, to, to manufacture massive more amounts of weapons, and to export them to new places. So the German arms industry can now export weapons to conflict zones, which it wasn't allowed to before which also means that countries that Germany has sold weapons to, such as the Netherlands, can also on-sell component parts. And there had been a ban on on selling them on, but they can now sell them on as well. So the arms industry, not only is it increasing in size and investment, it's also increasing in where they can sell weapons, in which conflict in Somalia or Yemen or anywhere else in the world that they want to make a killing, they can. And this is all coming at the cost of our pensions and and our clean energy and our future. It's a little bit depressing when you think about it, because it's 
it only seems to be escalating in terms of arms production and, as you said, fueling those arms to conflict zones around the world, which will increase conflict. And all of it adds up to this idea that the challenges we face in terms of climate breakdown will just disappear and we'll stop talking about them, as we have done, of course, and we'll stop worrying about them. And then those the impact of climate breakdown will kind of blindside us when it's too late. What I meant to mention as well, which sort of slips, I think, a lot of people by, is that Ukraine is actually itself a major arms exporter. And in 2012, it was the fourth largest arms exporter worldwide. It's dropped since then, in large part due to the, the conflict from 2014-15, when it's uh, made a conscious effort and redirected its, uh, its production towards the feeding and fueling and the internal conflict. They had been selling to Russia beforehand and they stopped that, but they're also selling to to, to Yemen and, and to elsewhere with other conflict zones. But they're curiously, and this strikes me as it's a little odd, and I'm not a military man, so maybe they, they need lots more of these than, than they have. But one of the major weapons that Ukraine manufactures and it's a national arms conglomerate. So Ukroboromprom was set up in 2010, bringing together all of the arms manufacturers of Ukraine. One of the major productions is actually anti-tank missiles. So many of the weapons being sent to help Ukraine are anti-tank missiles, including javelins, as Stuart mentioned earlier, which are, I think, a class above. But a lot of what Ukraine has been producing itself is anti-tank missiles, including these very high-tech, fancy things that have been operated by drones from a great distance and are very precise. So they've got a lot of this stuff, which has helped them with the the fight against Russia, obviously. But I just find it curious that a major arms exporter is in need of aid. <laughs> I think that's another, that's another podcast that we had looking at the ins and outs of the international arms industry. When we put out the pod a couple of weeks ago, I attached another tweet to it saying, look, if you have any questions or there's anything you want us to talk about, feel free to send us in a wee message. And I've got a couple of, got quite a few questions in actually. We've answered a few of them as we've spoken there for the last while. But there were two other questions that came in. And one of them was, come in and it's what's the impact of all of this, if you like, all of these massive shifts in politics and economics on socialist organising in Europe and on the left in Europe. The pro-EU left has always been problematic for me, and that's putting it mildly. I've always been unconvinced as a socialist that we can remain in reform, and I've never seen though I have been asking what that plan might look like. But it seems that pooling national sovereignty into a kind of profoundly anti-democratic capitalist trading bloc isn't enough for some people. And this week we saw an article come out, Duro, and thanks for flagging up to me, that as socialists, we need to throw our weight in behind NATO. And I quote, as which it now sees or is redefining as an anti-imperialist defence league. Yeah, look, war brings out all kinds of madness. That, that particular article is, is part of a debate that's taking place within Germany and within the German left in particular. Because even before this conflict, there were some within the link of the German left party that were, that were calling for the party to drop its position of opposition to NATO and for German NATO membership. And this is an extension of that. And here in Denmark, it's a similar pressure as the left party here, the Red-Green Alliance, which is an anti-EU party, but not, no Remain reform. The position is leave, well, until May at least, when they have a vote to maybe change that. And they're opposed to an EU army. But when it comes to NATO, their elected reps, or not all of them, but many of them, have suddenly said, oh, no, our position is to leave NATO, but not yet, not until there's an alternative, and certainly not right now. It's actually really good. We need something like this. And you're just seeing a lot of very soft ideological positions in the, the people presenting it, ducking and covering, whereas the, the party has a very clear position, perhaps, but those who are in Parliament, in the public eye, and wondering about votes and media criticism are folding for fear that what if they do come for us and you know, buying into the, the absolute nonsense. Others, of course, have a ideological difference and actually think that it's worthwhile. But the idea of NATO as an anti-imperial alliance is politically, how shall I put this? It's not naive. Naive is too nice. It's ignorant. It's historically ignorant and factually incorrect. We can talk about the need for some kind of collective security operation between countries in Europe or elsewhere if we want, but NATO as a structure was created as an aggressive alliance and it remains an aggressive alliance and Part of what Russia is doing now is in response to the aggression of NATO forces. doesn't justify what has been happening there at all, but it's part of the context. And this half of the discussion has just been whacked off the board. And so this, there's now debates happening within parts of the European left as to whether or not we actually should change our position on NATO. Do we need this? And look, I don't know where that will end up. I know that Certainly at the moment, there's a lot of pressure being being applied. But I also know that in a few countries where the discussion is happening, the grassroots are pushing back as well, because people know that this is not a sensible thing. It's just the noise of war is deafening the discussion. International socialism used to be about peace, love and democracy. I'm not sure how um, supporting NATO gets us back into that space again. It is quite incredible, isn't it, that you can 
use the term socialism to describe yourself on one hand and then a second later talk about throwing your weight in buying a country that tore Libya to pieces, that bombed the shit out of Serbia and thousands of civilians that, you know, supported imperialist adventures across the globe. The late, great Stuart Hall, the academic, not the pervert TV presenter, did say something like the Labour Party exists only to go ahead and put down the Labour Party left. As a former Labour Party member, something which I feel only more embarrassed by than being a former banker, he has a point. A large part of the left over the last couple of weeks, and I include some of the people in my own household here, have an inability to see anything beyond a bipolar world. If you go ahead and try and understand and rationalise some of the Russian position on this, you're pro-Putin. And they jump on what you say. So this will just go ahead and even further divide the left. I've been quite astonished at some of the positions which have been adopted and at the inability to think uh, and at the inability to understand some of the major factors here. Why is America the major beneficiary of this conflict? Has America been pushing this for a while? Is America the main aggressor? There's more than one aggressor here, certainly, but there's an inability to think about this. I wonder sometimes if it gets back to a kind of issue which can be an issue inside my party and others, the whole area of patriotism. This happened in 1914 with Kautsky voting for the war credits. Patriotism took over socialism. I personally do not feel patriotic for anybody. I've got an Irish passport. My family background is Irish. I feel Irish that way. But at the same time, when I look at the history of the Irish Republic since the early 1920s, I see a horrible state dominated by the Catholic Church for a large part of its history, and now an EU satrap. My loyalty is to the, the working class anywhere. And that includes the people in Donbass, who are having a real problem just now with Ukrainian bombs bombing the shit out of them. And there has been on the left a complete abandonment of understanding right, that we are for the working class internationally not to go ahead and back some bunch of idiots like NATO and the soon-to-be NATO subsidiary, the European Union. Well, we've had this discussion before. The EU is basically a corporate conspiracy aimed at keeping the working class in Europe down. How anybody in the left can support that I have no idea. There are issues for the UK leaving the European Union, certainly, but some people during the debate on the left talked about the European Union like it was the fucking first international, and it most definitely is not that. You'll be glad to know the rant is now over. Thank you. Cheers for that. I, was gonna, I wasn't going to let you go on for much longer, but no, it, it's it's a difficult one and it's a tough one, but it's almost as if sometimes the left is where we understand it, and by that I mean people who used to believe in the, you know, the collective ownership of the means of production, distribution and exchange have just given up the ghost and use the language of the left, but actually are now just, I don't know, they're supporting or make, not it's not even social democracy because social democracy used to have this idea within it that it was a staging post for socialism or it was a parliamentary road to socialism. And now it just means you agree with capitalism, you agree with imperialism, but you maybe you want to tinker around with it and take the rough edges of it. And it seems to be a lack of vision. It's a lack of confidence in the working class. And yeah, they've been fundamentally, whatever the reasons, whatever the, the part that's brought them to this place, and <clears throat> certainly unions and social movements have been more weak than they have been strong in, in, in recent decades, with some notable and very proud exceptions. And because of this, this lack of confidence, they're more willing to put their faith in the institutions of the capitalist state for change and little tinkers and reforms and the like. And for that reason, they're willing also to vote in favour of sending weapons to a, a war zone, those weapons will be, which will be used against 19-year-old men from Russia who are busy killing 19-year-old men from Ukraine, as well as killing men, women and children who get in the way or who are hit deliberately or, or accidentally by bombs or whatever else. This is not the left of peace. And at the same time, some of these people can feel they can send, they can send a message saying, we are sending weapons here, but actually what we stand for is peace. This is the war is peace messages, the black is white. Either you are for peace or you are for a limited amount of war. If you stand for peace and disarmament, then you stand for it and you should be organising peaceful protests. 
You're right. It is a lack of confidence on the left. There's also a cowardice as well in the face of imperial power, in the face of public pressure, and in face of kind of public discourse. And I've seen so much cowardice from people on the left who just haven't stood up and says, actually, you have to be against this. You have to. You can be against war and against conflict. There used to be our position, you know. But last but not least, I've got a question in here. I don't know if I should touch on this one, but be careful with it. And it was a question about the International Reddit Legion. I think someone asked it today, which is these foreign fighters going to fight for... Now, these aren't... I'm not talking about Ukrainians going home to join their army or join local messages. I'll leave that to one side. And those people have a legitimate right, of course, to go back and do that. That's what they feel they need to do. But there's all these foreign fighters joining in these brave heroes, quite a few from Ireland, apparently, a few from Britain too. These brave heroes recruited from the various highest level of Call of Duty have found their way to Ukraine, only to realise on arrival that there's an actual conflict going on there where they might get killed. And some of them are scuttling back home. There was a sort of tweet tonight. I shouldn't fucking laugh, but I can't help it. And it was a apparently some bloke was sending like blurred photographs of himself in this forest back from Ukraine where he's fighting a lone battle. This Irish lad from County Loud. Apparently he's just in a forest behind his house in County Loud sending these photographs. He's got a crowdfunding page up, which he's raised about 2,000 euros. <laughs> he's pretending to be a fucking Ukraine. But listen, I met when I was in Yugoslavia in the early 90s, I met quite a few volunteers and some genuinely didn't even know who they were fighting for. And saying they were fighting as a stretch as well. Most were psychopaths, fascists, or just fucking idiots. Sometimes they were all three together. And now I know there have been thousands of right-wingers and fascists going to the Ukraine since 2014. There have been lots of reports on I know, Duruan, that you've spoken about this before. And I was at a conference in Germany in 2015 on anti-fascism, anti-fa conference in Germany, trade union conference. And I mentioned the Azov Battalion. I mentioned the rise of the right in Ukraine. And they turned the mic off on me and said, we're not here to talk about them. Because there's this kind of thing within Europe of the of good Nazis versus bad Nazis, and this kind of rehabilitation of lots of these people from the nineteen the, the four Nazi Germany. Um, but is there a danger? This is the question specifically. Just ask this question, Mrs. It. Is there a danger of lots of small arms going into Ukraine and the encouragement of the recruitment of thousands of adventurers, bodybuilders, and some fascists going into Ukraine? Is there a long-term problem there? Long-term problem and short-term problem as well. I saw something last week about a bodybuilder, a South Asian guy up in North London, who was talking about going there, and he says, I might be driving an ambulance, I might be driving a tank. You need a little bit of training to drive a tank, and those guys are just going to go ahead and get in the way. They'll be used to a certain extent like that former Hibs casual as a poster boy to go ahead and get more people in there. This is the new international brigade, but they will be of no use to anybody. I probably are the only person here who remembers the Colonel Callan Golan mercenaries in 1975. This was a bunch of mercenaries taken on by the Angolan MPLA forces. And interestingly enough, Callan, Costas Georgiou, I think was his name, had been a British soldier in the north of Ireland, and he and his mates had been done for robbing a sub-post office with a gun, I think actually in somewhere in the north of Ireland. So these were not a particularly pleasant bunch of people, went across there, and I think he shot something like 14 people for desertion. Proper mercenaries will tend to be experienced, quite brutal soldiers. The people going across there now are going to be some ragtag bunch of fascists. And one of the things that seems to have inspired them, and this is an important thing that we haven't really talked about, is the complete and utter surrender of the entire media in the UK and across Europe to the NATO point of view. There has been almost no alternative view given whatsoever. Ukraine is good and heroic. Russia is all bad. Thanks for that, Mr. Stuart. Durowan, you've written about, and I know you know a lot about, and you've written about the rise of the rights and the existence of fascism within the German military and German police, and broadly about the rise of the right across Europe. But this doesn't help things, does it? This idea of recruiting thousands of, well, whether they're fascists or just fucking idiots or a combination of both going into Ukraine, it doesn't bode well for the future, does it? Or it doesn't bode well post-conflict? It doesn't bode, as Stuart says, now or long term. I mean, looking at the aftermath of, of you know, Kosovo and the likes, the amount of weapons that on the market freely flowing around dangerous weapons used then afterwards in uh, in bank robberies or in murders, gang warfare. And there's a running joke happening at the moment that if you want an assault rifle, just get a return flight to Kiev right now. <laughs> or maybe not Kiev, maybe you can't fly in, but yeah, close enough. Look, the, I think there's a differentiation between the people that are going there. You've got your willing idiots who want to go and fight a war, thinking that they're a bit of a Rambo hero type. And then you've got the other idiots, the more sort of dangerous political types who are also stupid and they're not particularly well, most of them well organised from the far right. Here in Denmark, there was a couple of them actually given a platform on national television without the broadcast they realised that they actually had convictions for neo-Nazi violence. And they were 
Lord of this, oh, look at this great, a Dane going off to fight against Putin and for Ukrainian democracy. And one of them was back 10 days later, <laughs> very quietly, because it, they, I think it was shown very firmly the door. It's like, you don't belong here. You're not actually helping anyone. But the far that is organised is in regular contact with the Azov Battalion. And before even 2014, the Ukrainian far-right neo-Nazis in, in Italy, in France, in Spain, in Germany, all of these people are in regular contact. There's some divisions within them and competition within them. So actually there's a lot of Russian fascists and Nazis fighting on the Ukrainian side right now. And then there's Russian fascists and Nazis fighting on the Russian side in the you know, Wagner group and in Donbass in the Sparta battalion. But these group, these numbers, I don't know how many of them are going to be very meaningful that have been sent or that are going to fight for Ukraine. I'm a little more concerned, uh, just from a sort of a war crimes and human rights perspective, from about this idea that Putin wants to bring in 16 or 20,000 mercenaries from Syria, because they're much more likely to be organised. And there have been stories and accounts of Russian soldiers refusing to fire because the civilians, if they're neighbours, they speak almost the same language. And But you bring in someone from Syria who has no connection or identification with the culture and the language and the people there, just like bringing in Chechen battalions as well, which is already done. And the risk of civilian casualties increases. The risk of abuses increases. And it just means that the risk of ongoing conflict and bloodshed and tragedy also increases. And so on this, there's a question of what we should be doing. And I don't think we should be going to fight in the Ukraine. But one of the things that I've found interesting is we're looking at what the voices of the left in Russia and Ukraine that you can find. A lot of the voices are, have been silenced, have been saying. And one of the calls that I find interesting, which is something that maybe people who want to do something useful outside of the region can do, is campaigning to cancel Ukraine's debt. Because whatever happens after this conflict, they're going to need to rebuild. And it's a perfect opportunity for neoliberal vultures to come in, privatise more than already has been privatised, and inflict terrible austerity on the place. Cancelling the debt at least provides a degree of breathing space in that. And it's something progressive that the left in Ukraine can have international support in campaigning for. It doesn't solve the problem of Nazis with guns. It's a sort of, our fight is also a different one for social change. Yeah, the fear of bringing in mercenaries from even, even Putin's suggestions alongside this international fucking legion. There was even a comparison in The Guardian with fucking Spain in 36, which is highly offensive. But nonetheless, the danger there, of course, is turning Ukraine into a meat grinder. And that doesn't suit anybody. It certainly doesn't suit the Ukrainian civilians and certainly doesn't suit the soldiers involved in it as well or the long-term instability of providing that region. Lads, look, thanks very much for your contributions today. We will come back and talk about this again. Let's hope that mooted peace process today, we see hear more of it and see more of it from this point onwards. We want to see peace. We want to see de-escalation. We want to see ceasefires and we want to see withdrawals and we want to see less people getting slaughtered over there. So look, until next time, Goram thanks very much. That was Trademark Belfast, and you are fucking marvellous. If you have a few quid, support the Left Block Media Patreon. If you don't, just listen in. Up the workers, and slang a foil. Listener.